Uh, Let's come to God in prayer as we come to this passage. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it's the end of the day. Many of us are tired, distracted, uh, anxious about other things on our mind. Uh, Please help us to think about your word now, though. Help us to focus on what it's saying and how we should be applying it to our lives. Help me to preach it faithfully and apply it thoughtfully. Uh, And in your kindness, please grow us in our faith in Jesus so that he might get more of the glory that he deserves. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There are many examples in life uh, of where things need to be calibrated from time to time. No, this needs to be calibrated. (laughs) Turned on. Uh, Oh, Rhett, yes, we've got lights. Um, All right. Well, there are many things that need to be uh, in life that need to be calibrated, including this little clicker from time to time. Uh, Checked over to make sure that everything is functioning as it should. Uh, This was certainly the case in my former profession as an orthoptist. Uh, Still not working? Ah, right. No. Still not good? Ah, yes. All right. We're talking about recalibrating things, basically. And it was certainly the case in my former profession as an orthoptist uh, that things from time to time had to be recalibrated. Uh, All the eye testing equipment had to be recalibrated uh, to ensure the results were accurate. Uh, Take the Goldman tonometer. For example, a machine used to check a person's eye pressure and to screen for glaucoma. Uh, If that was to start giving an inaccurate reading, it could actually lead to disastrous results. It could mean the difference between someone receiving needed treatment and simply walking out the door thinking they're fine. Uh, Over time, it could mean the difference between uh, vision saved and vision irreparably lost. Now, sometimes, even if things seem okay, it's vital that we take the time needed to do a bit of a recalibration. And the same thing is true of the church community. Every church has the capacity to go off kilter, out of whack with how Jesus wants us to live. Every church needs to be kind of regularly recalibrated uh, by the word of Jesus so that it keeps functioning in line with him and his way. Uh, The ancient church of Corinth was one such community in need of some recalibration. God had used the Apostle Paul to establish this church during his second missionary journey. We heard about that experience in Acts chapter 18, the first Bible reading. Corinth was located at kind of the crossroads between the eastern and western parts of the Roman Empire. It was a religiously diverse city. It was a sex-saturated city home to many rich people, but a home to many poor people. Uh, It was a prosperous city, but it had its fair share of moral problems. Uh, One ancient visitor to Corinth wrote of the sordidness of the rich and the misery of the poor, a place abounding in luxuries but inhabited by ungracious people. But as someone commented to me recently, the issue for Paul's audience is not that their church was in Corinth, but that Corinth was in their church. The prevailing attitudes and behaviours of the kind of pagan culture around the church had been allowed to kind of seep into the lives of the people and throw it off kilter a little bit. 
Pride and competitiveness had seeped in. Sexual immorality was starting to raise its head among some of the people. People were thinking kind of too much of themselves and not not enough about others. And yet despite the challenges of this church, Jesus doesn't give up on this church, which he loves. Through his apostle Paul, who wrote this letter together with Sosthenes, Jesus seeks to recalibrate this church, to bring it back in line with the way of God, not the way of Corinth. And as we go through this letter together, we need to let Jesus kind of recalibrate us too. Like the Corinthians, we are capable of allowing our wealthy, our sex-saturated, self-focused culture to seep in and distort the way we do life together. It's actually good that we take time to check in with God's word and allow this letter to make sure that we are thinking, acting, relating in accordance with what Jesus wants for us as a 5pm community. And to begin that process, tonight's passage begins with the fundamental question of church identity. This passage, I think, gets us to recalibrate how we think about ourselves as a church. And there are three things that we need to know about our church community that I think come out of this passage. We have a holy identity. We are sanctified in Christ. We are richly blessed, enriched in Christ, Paul says, and we are deeply connected, united in Christ. So first, we have a holy identity. Uh, Now, when you think of something that is declared holy, what comes first to mind? Uh, Maybe it's the image of some special person like a priest. Maybe it's a kind of special building like a church or a temple or a special place or territory like the Holy Land of Israel. Uh, Maybe it's the idea of a special festival like Christmas or Easter. We sing, O Holy Night. Most religions of the world have their special things that they deem holy. But notice right at the beginning of this letter what Paul is saying that is truly holy in God's eyes. It's not some special individual or building or place or day. It's a group of regular people, a bit like us. And like the Corinthians to whom Paul writes, that's who God says is holy. A group of people known collectively as the church who believe in Jesus and gather together to worship him. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. To be sanctified means to be set apart for God. It's a way of saying that something is holy and acceptable in God's eyes. But how did regular people like the Corinthians and those of us gathered here today who are believers, how do we become holy and acceptable? Well, Paul says that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. It is through our faith in Jesus, his death for our sin, his powerful resurrection, that God cleanses us from the stain of sin, that he declares us righteous in his sight and makes us his own people who are fit to dwell in wonderful and lasting relationship with him. See, that's why Paul doesn't just describe uh, them as the church at Corinth, literally the assembly at Corinth, but it's the church of God at Corinth. See, it's not just the church of, at Bandura, 
but the church of God at Bundura. We are of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus. So Paul says the Corinthians have a holy, sanctified identity. But notice that he also adds at the end there of that sentence that they're called as saints. Uh, Another translation reads, uh, called to be saints or called to be holy. Now, sometimes when we hear saints, we think, you know, very special religious figures in stained glass windows. But the term saint or holy one in the New Testament is just a description for every believer in Jesus. Paul is therefore saying that a church is made up of people already made holy, but also called to be holy. Which is it? Are we holy or are we supposed to be holy? Well, the truth is both. The New Testament uses the term holy, sanctified, in both a kind of past and completed sense, but also in an ongoing and future sense. Put simply, God calls us to be who we already are in Christ. Our status as holy people has lived out implications. Because we have a holy status in Christ, we pursue holiness in our lives, saying no to sin and yes to Christ. This is the note that Paul starts on because it's actually the bedrock truth that will guide so much of his application to the Corinthians in their sticky situations throughout the letter. Be who you are. You actually see it in chapter 6, for example, where Paul is exhorting some members to turn from their sexual sin, turn from their selfishness. And he tells them, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's basically saying, why are you acting like this? Why are you acting like you used to act? That's not you anymore. You're not of the world, you're of God. You are holy, so be who you are. Uh, That God views us as holy, sanctified in Christ, is such a remarkable privilege when you think about how unremarkable we all are. Uh, And I don't mean any offence by that, but it's kind of true. You know, as a group of people here, we're not really any better than any other group in our community. Uh, We're just as unremarkable, imperfect and sinful as the other people in our suburb are. And yet we are wonderfully loved and cherished by God who sees us as his holy people, forgiven of sin and stamped with the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ. You have a holy identity as a believer, as a people of God, so be who you are. Let's keep letting our identity actually impact our lives. See, in our marriages, we need to think, I've been sanctified in Christ, I need to be who I am now and treat my spouse with Christ-like love, turning away from anger, turning away from laziness. When we go to a party, we need to think, I've been sanctified in Christ. Set apart from a life of sin, I need to be who I am and show some self-control at this party. When we're tempted to gossip about someone in the community, we need to think, I've been sanctified in Christ. 
I need to be who I am and say no to that loveless act. See, Paul starts with the topic of our identity because as we'll see in this letter, it impacts everything. We have a holy identity, sanctified in Christ. But the second way this passage kind of recalibrates how we think about ourselves is that it reminds us how richly blessed we are as a community of believers in Jesus. You are enriched in Christ in every way, says Paul. Look at verses 4 to 5 in your Bibles. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ, uh, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. See, there's no doubt that the Corinthian church, as we'll see over the weeks, had its fair share of issues. But notice that Paul doesn't start with the issues. He doesn't start by speaking about how he's always praying about their issues, groaning over the things that are going wrong in the church. And, you know, sometimes I think we can kind of think about, think like that about others or perhaps even ourselves. All we see are the issues, the things that need changing. But the issues are not where Paul starts, though, with this group of people. He starts, he says that he's first of all thankful for them. And he tells us why. Uh, This group of imperfect Corinthians had by God's grace done the one thing that matters more than anything else in our lives. They had put their faith in Jesus. They had listened to Paul's message of the gospel when he came to them. They had confessed Jesus as their crucified and risen saviour and had started to relate to him as their Lord. In doing so, they had been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Previously, these Corinthians were spiritually impoverished people, trapped in a world of paganism, without hope, without God in the world, Paul says in Ephesians. Paul speaks about the way they used to be enticed by mute idols when they were pagans in chapter 12 of this letter. But now in Christ... Everything had changed. They were no longer impoverished. They had become enriched, says Paul. Enriched in all speech and knowledge. They were a community of people who had been spiritually awakened by the living God. They had turned away from the idols that they once worshipped and now declared Jesus is Lord. Christ is who they now spoke of. Christ is who they now knew. Uh, Verse 6, in this way, says Paul, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, their obvious conversion, the spiritual gifts they now enjoyed, which we'll look at in later weeks, it was all evidence that the message of the gospel did what God had intended it to do. It had saved these people and it was starting to change them. And as such, they could be confident in the faithfulness of God that Christ would continue to keep them secure in his care until the great day of his return. Verse 8, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you'll be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the Corinthian church may be messy in a number of different ways, but they were still enriched in Christ, blessed beyond belief. 
And it's a wonderful reminder of God's grace to save, change, and sustain sinful and broken people who simply trust Jesus, people like us. People who are in fellowship with Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that is our community too, in many ways. We, like they, were impoverished without Christ. We, like they, are enriched in him. Saved, transformed, sustained by God's grace. We, like they, can look forward to that great day of God's judgment and be confident that the holy God will declare us not guilty in Christ and welcome us into his eternal kingdom of unimaginable blessing. And you see, if you're not a Christian, you're with us tonight, please know that there is always room for one more among Jesus' people. You can also be enriched by his forgiveness and salvation, for as Paul's already told us in verse 2, this is on offer for those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, who trust their lives into his hands. Uh, Paul's gratitude to God should remind us too that we must be a community marked by deep thankfulness. Uh, my kids love the story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, many of you will know it. You have a handful of kids who each win a ticket uh, to meet the famous Willy Wonka and enter into his amazing chocolate factory, every kid's dream. Uh, but just to consider for a moment the difference in gratitude between the character Veruca and the character Charlie in that story. See, Veruca in the story is depicted as a kind of thankless, rich brat, never satisfied with all that she's being given, always demanding more, even in a chocolate paradise. Charlie, on the other hand, comes across as kind of an awestruck and kind of utterly thankful for where he is. He had come from poverty... Now he was in paradise with the big man himself. See, we need to be a church full of Charlies, not Verukas. Uh, People who stand awestruck and thankful for where we now are. Thankful for the privilege and the blessing of being called into the kingdom of the big Lord himself. And I'm thankful that we actually do have many Charlies in our church here. Many people who are are genuinely thankful for the ways God has enriched them in Jesus. I was talking to someone uh, a while back who was a bit newer to the congregation and he was sharing how thankful he was for the way God had grown him during his time at church and in the Christian union at his uni. He was deeply thankful that he had come to see Christ as the source of such rich blessing. For the most part of his life, he said how Christ had been put on the sidelines, but now he occupied center stage. Now he was the topic of conversation with friends and colleagues who didn't know him. And you see, that's the kind of thankful attitude that comes when you can clearly see the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, given to each other. Uh, But how do we keep cultivating that kind of deep thankfulness within our community here? Well, I think it starts by simply talking with each other about how God has enriched us as believers within a 5pm community. 
See, the way we cultivate gratitude is to actually hear more stories of how God has saved us and is continuing to transform us by his grace given to us in Christ. And I think there's always a simple question that you can ask someone after church that I think helps with this. How did you become a Christian if they are a Christian? See, this question I've found in my experience always makes for a great conversation. But above all, it lets you and hopefully the person you're talking with leave church with a bigger view of God's grace to his people. See, we need to remember how enriched we really are or else we'll just slip into becoming a thankless community, a joyless community, one where we get more excited about the news of hot chips than the news of our saving Christ. Uh, We are richly blessed, so be thankful. Uh, The final way this passage recalibrates how we think about ourselves as a church is that it reminds us how deeply connected we are in Christ. Uh, Every believer in a church community has been united to Christ through faith in him. And in this way, whether we like it or not, uh, we are deeply connected to each other. For Christ is not divided, Paul says in verse 13. Jesus unites us spiritually in him and calls us to live out practically in our community that unity by avoiding unhealthy factions. See, look at what Paul is saying in verse 10. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction So Jesus wants us to be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. About what? Uh, Are members of a church community supposed to be united with the same understanding, the same conviction, about the style of music and the length of sermons? Or about the practice of baptism? Or the management of COVID? Or are we to be united around the visionary goals of a dynamic leader? A few years back, one of the biggest megachurches in the US started giving out the kids in their congregation colouring pages which had a picture of their main pastor on it under the heading that said Unity. And the, the subtext says, we are united under the visionary. And then the further fine print says, this church is built on the vision that God gave Pastor X. See, is that the kind of unity that we should have? Unity around one of our dynamic leaders. Well, Paul makes it clear that throughout this letter that a community of believers are to be united around the gospel of Jesus. That's the big ticket item that Jesus commissioned Paul to pass on to the churches he established uh, in in his missionary journeys. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its power. Uh, Baptism, which Paul um, kind of has been mentioning in those verses there, is an example of something in the life of the church that is important. The Bible speaks about it, worth thinking about. But you see, even baptism is not the thing that a church community should be united under. It's the gospel, the message of the cross, which brings forgiveness of sin and imparts life to those who believe it. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will call this gospel message the thing of first importance in the church, the message upon which the Corinthians have rightly taken their stand, he says. As we are spiritually united in Christ, so we must be practically united in Christ by being united in the message of his gospel. But it's not always easy. Because consciously or unconsciously, we can start to put other things, other agendas, ideas, other beloved leaders in the place of first importance. And you see, that was what was happening in Corinth. Instead of being a church united in Christ and his gospel, they were a community kind of divided and devoted to big-name preachers. You see that in verse 11 of your Bibles. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. So let's just think about the appeal of each one of those factions for a minute. Uh, In the first corner, you have those loyal to Paul. Uh, We could theorize that they were the ones who perhaps held him in dear in their hearts, as the one who had first evangelized them, they had been converted under his ministry and they'd always be loyal to him. In the second corner, you've got the Apollos fan club. Apollos had visited Corinth after Paul left. You can keep reading that in Acts 18. He was famous in the Bible for his dynamic preaching ability, his debating prowess against the Jews at Corinth. Uh, You've seen those YouTube video clips that have the kind of label, such and such destroys such and such. I can imagine Apollos being featured in one of those videos, Apollos destroys such and such. You see, where Paul's preaching was perhaps seen as a little bit long-winded from time to time, a bit dry occasionally, Apollos was engaging, eloquent, vigorous. And in a culture that valued those charismatic gifts and attributes, Apollos naturally had his followers and in the third corner, you've got Cephas, also known as Peter, one of the apostles, his crew. Now, it could be argued in the eyes of some, uh, Peter's great draw card was the fact that he was one of the original 12, a real deal apostle, perhaps, who had you know, spent all these years close to Jesus. He was someone who could perhaps give you more intimate, behind-the-scenes pictures of Jesus, perhaps. These are just theories, but we're thinking about what could actually appeal. And in the fourth corner, you have the I follow Christ faction. Now, these guys are intriguing, aren't they? Because on the surface, you think, aren't they in the good one? Isn't it good to be following Christ? But I think their issue is that they're actually viewing themselves as belonging to Christ, distinct from their fellow believers, as if their fellow believers didn't somehow quite belong to Christ. Uh, This group uh, may have been those who saw themselves as the super spiritual, the super gifted, the enlightened, those who in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 declare themselves to belong to Christ, but then question whether Paul actually does. And so you can imagine the rivalry that would have been at play here, each camp kind of casting doubts on the authenticity, the spirituality, or the power of the other camp. You're still following Paul? Well, if you want something a little bit more engaging, come and check out Apollos. He's good with my pagan neighbours, he knows just how to reach them. Oh, you're still following Apollos? Well, yeah, he's pretty dynamic, but I think he could be a little deeper. 
Not as deep as our guy Peter. He's seen things that Apollos could only dream about. See, the Corinthians, not the preachers themselves, had actually put the likes of Paul, Apollos and Peter on unhelpful pedestals. They'd become more focused on a specific preacher than on the Lord that they were preaching about. And in so doing, they had kind of splintered off into their respective tribes. And I think we can do this as believers today. We can make preachers or leaders who have grown to love the main deal. Uh, We too can start to think, only this pastor really gets me. I'm only really going to listen to him. I'm only going to come when my guy is preaching. And in the age of podcasts and YouTube, it's easy to make kind of modern-day big-name preachers the main deal too. Hence, you have T-shirts being sold that read, John Piper is my homeboy. (laughs) But what does a T-shirt like that actually say? Doesn't it say something similar to verse 13? I belong to Piper. And you see, when we speak like that, when we kind of take on that attitude, we unintentionally perhaps foster a sense of disunity with other believers in the congregation. Not always, but it can happen. We can create kind of barriers, even rivalries, with others who may not agree with every point that Piper makes or just simply doesn't know him and kind of feels confused by this random allegiance. But the truth is that as Christians, you're not primarily in the tribe of Piper or Keller or Carson or whoever it might be, or Neil or Chris or Andrew, you're in the tribe of Christ. That's what gives you and the believers you gather with a deep and abiding connection. See, other preachers and pastors, they may well be shepherds, but they, like you, are sheep of Jesus. They are weak, they're fallible, they can easily disappoint us, so don't run to them as champions or saviors. Let's have the same understanding, the same conviction that the only champion we have leading our collective tribe as a Bundy 5pm community is Jesus, our Messiah. This is Paul's point in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised into Paul's name? The answer to all three, those is of course not. Christ is not divided, nor should you be. Paul's not your saviour, or the one you should or you, the one you confessed as Lord in baptism. So don't treat him or anyone else like that. And I think there is actually a message for those of you who are leaders among us here at this point. See, whether you're a pastor, an elder, or a growth group leader, a kids or a youth leader, you will do well to remember that you are not their saviour. See, sometimes you may think you need to be the saviour of those in your care. You may think you have to have all the answers to their big questions. You may think you have to fix all their problems. You may think you have to always be available and ready to help them at the drop of a hat. But if you start to see yourself in kind of saviour, messiah-like categories, you will not only be crushed at your own expectations, you will actually end up teaching people 
that they need to come to you first and not Jesus. You see, a good leader, and I need to hear this as much as any other leader, always does what Paul does here. He or she points away from themselves and on to Jesus. See, Paul's kind of saying at the end of this passage in verse 17, I didn't come to draw attention to myself, my fancy preaching. I came to preach the gospel. To point you guys to the one who died for you. You see, we as a community must know the only true source of unfailing help and salvation comes from Jesus. He is the one that we are called to trust. He is the one who joins us together in gospel unity. Uh, God's word tonight has given us a chance to recalibrate how we think about ourselves as a church community. We have a holy identity, sanctified in Christ. We are richly blessed, enriched in Christ. We are deeply connected, united in Christ. Now, when I had to recalibrate the eye equipment in my former profession, it would often require a bit of effort. I had to go and consult a manual, start pulling things apart, tinkering away. Uh, but then I would be sure that the machine was functioning as it should be. See, as we work our way through the rest of 1 Corinthians, there's going to be likewise a degree of effort involved on your behalf. Uh, you'll need to come each Sunday prepared to think deeply about what God is saying to you and to all of us in this letter. You'll need to tinker away at some heart application, figuring out if slash where things need to change for you. And above all, we'll need to remember that God is faithful, verse 9. He loves our church more than we ever could, and he will help ensure that bit by bit in Christ we are functioning as we should be. So let's come before him in prayer now. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Uh, thank you that you do care so much about your church, that you care so much about us here at Bundy. Uh, help us to know who we are in Christ, that we are sanctified in him, enriched in him, and united in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.